Our epistle reading today comes from the book of Romans. Romans 8, verses 6 through 11. To set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For this reason, the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. But you are not in the flesh. You are in the spirit, since the spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will give life to your mortal bodies also through his spirit that dwells in you. This is the word of the Lord. I'm going to pray really quickly and then we'll, we'll begin. Gracious Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for the people that are gathered here this morning. We thank you for your word to us as a people. Come Holy Spirit, make these words alive and true and cause them to affect our lives in ways that we can't even imagine. We ask this in your name, Jesus. Well, good morning. If we haven't met, my name is Isaiah. I'm the associate pastor here, Christ the King. Um, so good to be with you. I'm so excited about this weather. This is, this is only my seventh month in Arkansas, so I'm just, everything is a surprise. I keep thinking like, okay, we've turned the corner, and then it's like ice storm, and then I think we're going, you know, and then it's like a wind thing, so, so I'm just constantly surprised. Not a bad thing. I'm, 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 I'm here for it, so it's a great thing. Um, we're picking up with the lectionary text for the season of Lent with another installment of uh, Paul's letter to the churches in Rome. If you're joining us for the first time today, or if, like myself, you can't remember what happened this last Thursday, much less what happened in the last few Sundays, uh, let me give you a little bit of a recap, okay? So Paul's letter to the Romans is ultimately aimed at community building. Um, this might come as a surprise. I just wanted to say this out loud. Sometimes we, t- we think about Romans as like a systematic theology or some huge lofty treatise. And to be sure, it's got lots of really dense words and run-on sentences that are very classic for Paul. Um, some of it can feel kind of con- confusing, but um, we shouldn't mistake that language um, for being something that is you know, for scholars to read or for the really highly enlightened spiritual folks among us. That's actually just for people, just like you and I. So Paul's actually working on something quite practical, and that becomes really clear towards the end of Romans in chapters 12 through 16. And you start realizing, oh, all of this, all the stuff that you're talking about, all the theological gymnastics and your declaration of the cross and, and death and burial and resurrection of Jesus and its significance for us has a lot to do with our everyday life situation, which is um, how do you live with people that are really different than you? Um, His main goal in writing is taking those who decided that they could live without one another in the family of God, nonetheless, and bring them back together through a fresh telling of the gospel, reminding them of their actual identities in Christ. For Paul, this looks like taking the scattered and divided Roman churches, plural, living together in the world and and bringing them together in a cruciform or cross-shaped ways that have been determined by the self-giving of God on the cross in the person of Jesus. 
nothing short of this kind of self-giving love empowered by God's Spirit will ultimately enable people of great difference culturally, socially, economically, politically, like some of us in the room, to live together and seek the peace and renewal of the world in anticipation of God's new creation to come. And that brings us to Romans 8, which is today. And Romans 8 is a really significant text for me. Um, When I was about 19 or 20, I experienced a major paradigm shift in my faith and in my life connected to what Paul is describing specifically in in, uh, chapters 7 and 8 of Romans. So it's near and dear to my heart because of that. And then 10 years later, it became so important to myself and to my soon-to-be wife, kind of independently, that we chose a passage from Romans 8, skipped the typical uh, 1 Corinthians 13, which I love and is great, and just went for this. And actually, honestly, I kind of had wished, like, in the middle of our wedding, it's the part where it's like the end. It's really beautiful. It says what can separate us from the love of God. But before that, it's almost like we'd forgotten. There's all this stuff about suffering and persecution and stuff. And it's like our wedding was a really mixed crowd. And the guy that we asked to do it, and we were just really busy. And it's like, it wasn't until we were like standing at the altar listening to him preach. That we we're like, this is intense. This is actually, like, I feel uncomfortable. I hope that my aunt, you know what I mean? It was just one of those kind of moments. But nonetheless, it was a beautiful and poignant moment. And so, of course, Romans feels like just near and dear to my heart because of that. Um, Yeah. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Man, spoiler alert, nobody can. That's, I mean, that, I think that line alone makes this chapter a favorite for me. It's chock full of statements. Like, if we were to try to go through the entirety of just this chapter, not the book, but just this chapter, we could spend hours on single lines just like that one, who could separate us from the love of Christ. This morning we're dealing with just five of those verses, Um, but of course they're dense and packed with meaning. Um, When we engage with a a dense text like today's, you could feel easily lost in all the complex sentences and it can be a struggle to follow the larger arguments, and for good reason. We are coming into the middle of a much bigger argument, an overarching one, and the contrast, for example, between Romans 7 and Romans 8 is crucial to understanding our passage today. So we're kind of coming in mid-conversation. Uh, Romans 7 is a stark description of a dysfunctional and distorted humanity, us before uh, Christ, created good in God's image, but through our own devices and desires, as we sometimes pray, and the influence of spiritual evil in the world, now fallen and unable to save ourselves. Even when we're aware of the good that is possible, We lack the ability to embody that goodness, and instead we often find ourselves doing evil. We hold grudges, working hard to preserve ourselves, both socially and materially. We are often willing to exploit one another for convenience' sake. Uh, This is the proverbial valley of dry bones where we find ourselves, like Ezekiel's text today that we just heard, um, without God and without hope in the world. This description of human life before the self-giving of God and Jesus through his cross elucidates the reality of the human condition. And I love that. I think the, the starting point always needs to be how things actually are. There can't be any pretense. This is not a space for that. The, the good news and invitation of Romans 8 only makes sense in light of the dark description of humanity in Romans 7. Paul will describe this person who lives with an awareness of God's goodness espoused in the law, but lacks the power to be able to enter that goodness for themselves. And just as a side note too, sometimes we hear the word law and we think legal or civic code, but um, Paul does have a couple different meanings he's using for the word law in Romans, but 
often, like in this case, he's really talking about Torah, and it's not a bad thing. There's, this is not Paul bashing on the law. He's actually like the biggest fan. And you can tell because he's constantly like quoting from it, and he sees it as ultimately good, but by itself powerless to infect the transformation that it depicts, right? And so this is where he's going to throw us onto his, his main point in, in Romans 8. Um, he writes in chapter 7, and you guys may be familiar with this, uh, for we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of flesh, speaking of someone who's not a believer, sold into slavery under sin. I do not understand my own actions, for I do what I do not want, but I do the very thing that I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree that the law is good, but in fact, it is no longer I who do it, but the sin that dwells within me. For I know that the good does not dwell within me, that is, in my flesh. For the desire to do the good lies close at hand, but not the ability. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I do. Now, if I do what I want, it is no longer I who do it, but the sin that dwells within me. Listen to what indwells someone before the rescue of Christ. It is in fact no longer I, but the sin that dwells within me, for I know that the good does not dwell within me, that sin dwells within me. He just keeps over and over and over. Sometimes we tune it out because we're just like, okay, get to the point, get to the point. But he's underlining something for us here. So sin dwells in me. This is a description of people created in God's image, fallen and affected by spiritual evil, real spiritual evil in our world. We're like guided by uh, our, our home base. Our default ends up being the sin that dwells in us. And we strive for it. We strive to dominate one another. We strive to get ahead. Even when we are doing good, often we have these mixed motives, and we hate it. We don't like that about ourselves. Um, but Paul's got an answer for that. Contrast this idea of sin dwelling in me with our passage today from Romans 8. But you are not in the flesh, you are in the Spirit, since the Spirit of God dwells in you. But if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will give life to your mortal bodies also through his spirit that dwells in you. Do you hear the contrast? Do you hear the, this idea of dwelling? There's sin that dwells in us, but now being brought in to the life of Christ through his death and resurrection, his self-giving love, we now are in a place where the spirit dwells in us. And I just want to say as a caveat, because I, I can imagine your mind kind of racing to say, well, are you saying that we, we can't sin? I, you know, clearly, like, this would be a very... Uh, not just dangerous, but foolish things to say. So I'm just going to say it out loud before, before we get there. Um, no, the capacity to sin, of course, is here. It's, it is in our humanity. It's just what's our, what's our primary resting place. And Paul's really clear. For the Christian, the primary resting place is the Spirit of God which indwells us. It's no longer our default just to sin. Yes, we have capacity, but it is not our normal anymore. And so... We'll get into more of that later, but I just wanted to say that so that you can hear the next thing I'm saying and not just think about, like, does he believe in sin? I hope he believes in sin. I hope this isn't some kind of weird perfectionistic thing. So it, it, it's, it's not. Um, what dwells in the person who has come through the waters of baptism, being buried with Christ and raised to new life, it's the spirit. Paul sets these two in contrast to each other, sin or the flesh which leads to anguish in the short term and ultimately leads to our death in contrast with the spirit that leads to life 
peace, and ultimately resurrection. You might have noticed that theme in our, our readings from today. Stories of resurrection, both in the present and in the future. One of the first things I want to say, I think about this, when we begin to talk about the Spirit, this is not so much like a, we're running through each logical statement, but there are things that come up for us when we read texts like this. And oftentimes when people talk about the Holy Spirit, um, the, the thing that comes up is uh, language that people use to talk about the Spirit that kind of denotes sort of two categories of persons in the church. So one of the first things Paul wants, us, wants to say to us here is that if you're in Christ, then you have the Spirit. That is to say there are no second-class citizens in God's kingdom. Sometimes when the Spirit gets talked about in some Christian circles, it can sound like there are those Christians who have the Holy Spirit, usually denoted in a particular experiential criteria, which of course varies from group to group. And um, then often, unfortunately, there's a specific designation to those persons who have the Holy Spirit or are Spirit-filled. In contrast to those other Christians who, I guess, presumably do not have the Spirit or are not Spirit-filled, In this passage, Paul makes it more than clear that this is simply just not true. In the community of Jesus, all are given his spirit, the spirit of Christ, God's spirit, the Holy Spirit. When I was 19, my dad and I took a road trip to the small town in southern Oregon where he grew up. On the way back, we took a detour farther into the mountains uh, to the upper portion of the Rogue River. The Rogue River is well known in Oregon for its rugged beauty and powerful rapids that draw thousands of whitewater rafters each year. Its headwaters begin in the glacial melt of the Cascade Mountains and then it carves its way through towering forests and a series of valleys and steep mountain ranges before finally emptying into the Pacific Ocean. It's beautiful. Even at 19, I, I knew about the Rogue as a whitewater destination, but what I did not know that I discovered on this trip with my dad is that this powerful river, in its entirety, goes underground, effectively disappearing right in the middle of this river for 250 feet, more than three quarters of a football field. You can walk across it, all that water, all that power seemingly disappearing. You can walk on top of a river with little to no awareness about what's going on on your feet. If you're in Christ, if you're someone who's been rescued by him, You have the Holy Spirit. Even in seasons and times where you cannot detect his indwelling presence, he is still right there, flowing powerfully as ever. We must not mistake our lack of experience in a particular season of time as an absence of God's Spirit. We are not abandoned. Paul will go on later in this chapter to talk about how the the Spirit allows us to cry to the Father, Abba, it's, a, it's the opposite of abandonment. It's actually a belonging. The spirit is a spirit of belonging. The Lenten season reminds us that God is with us in the desert. Israel was sustained and met God in the desert. Jesus was moved into the desert by the Holy Spirit and sustained. Even when we don't see it, he's working, water flowing underneath. So talk about the Holy Spirit in this passage or elsewhere in the New Testament for that matter isn't about some kind of secondary status on top of our union with Jesus. If we are in Christ, then we have a spirit dwelling in us. This talk of the spirit isn't about status, it's about invitation. And what is this invitation? The invitation is to the with God life, something we've been talking about around here for a while. The invitation is to be remade, 
to live our lives in, tra- in the transformation of the Spirit, to be renewed in our humanity, what Paul will later call in this chapter, being conformed to the image of the Son, speaking of Jesus. That the Spirit takes us and our humanity where we actually are, who we actually are in our personality, and he moves us towards Christ-likeness. He moves us towards the fruits of the Spirit, the gifts of the Spirit. It's a beautiful thing. It's the beginning of the new creation. It's the signs of things to come. Very much like the season that we're in. We're, we're in the church season of Lent, but right, we're in the physical season of spring. Interesting how those coincide. The end of a long winter, all of a sudden the buds start to come. This is what the Holy Spirit does inside of our hearts, inside of our lives. He brings newness where there has been death or dormancy. To set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. This is Paul's statement in this, in this uh, section. New Testament scholar Craig Keener puts this this way. The issue is not that a person of the spirit might sometimes succumb to fleshly temptation. Rather, the issue is that a person either had God's spirit in them, hence living a life oriented toward God, or a person had nothing more than themselves to depend on, hence could only live according to the flesh. We're going to talk about the mindset of the spirit, the mindset of the flesh, the orientation of that. Do you catch the the last part? Either either living a life oriented toward God or living like we had nothing more than ourselves to depend on. This is the difference between living with indwelling sin, living in the flesh, versus living with indwelling spirit and newness of life. Living in the spirit or having the orientation or the mindset of the spirit requires that we push past substandard ways of thinking of ourselves and the people and the world that God has made. This includes pushing past the naivety of idealists like me. I can often begin to plan out my life as though God is a supporting character, thinking that my own abilities will accomplish what I hope for. This is usually short-lived, however, and it can easily turn into a kind of fatalism when I encounter the adversity of life and my own personal failures. Of course, I wouldn't call it fatalism in those moments. I'm a realist, bravely facing life as it really is. I subconsciously take comfort in the fact that I'm protecting myself from disappointment, but I still imagine the future as it really is without God in it. What we are called to, along with Paul, the prophets, and Jesus himself, is what could be called a hopeful realism, or put more simply, faith. Notice the engagement with the hard realities in our readings today, the valley of dry bones, a people actually in exile, scattered, from the bottom, lost without a homeland, a country, a temple, a friend who has actually died. There is real grief. Jesus weeps. Maybe you noticed that in the reading today. For Paul in this letter, a real examination of the human condition outside of Christ, that what I, that what I want to do, I can't do, and what I don't want to do, I do. That's realism in the sense that, um, you know, power of positive thinking or spiritual life hacks just not going to get you through it. But then, the Spirit of God begins to move, slowly but surely bringing people back from the carnage of war into recognizable humanity, like in the Valley of Dry Bones. Flesh and blood comes on long dead bones. Jesus raises his friend from the dead. Paul declares the new reality of those who have gone through baptism of Christ's death and come out on the other side, still flesh and blood, but now with God's Spirit inside of them and resurrection filling the horizon ahead of them. 
that's hopeful realism. There's nothing more ultimately real in this world than God and his purposes. The invitation of our passage today starts with a statement of identity. You are not in the flesh. You're in the spirit, since the spirit of God dwells in you. But it isn't solely an individual statement of identity. The you there is y'all, which I found to be very useful, by the way. I'm really starting to, I'm I'm very conscious when I talk to people back home, but I honestly am just leaning into it because I think it's awesome, so. Um, But the you here is actually a y'all, it's plural, which is why the good Bishop N.T. Wright aptly translates this verse, but you're not people of the flesh, you're people of the spirit, highlighting the plurality of communal identity that we've been called to through Jesus. Interestingly, the Roman seven person, the oh, wretched person that I am, is in the singular. Wretched person that I, I am. Me. Whereas here it's clear that our new life in the Spirit is corporate. We are the people of the Spirit. To be the people of the Spirit, Paul wants us to know that there are ways of us being in the world that accord with our new identity and those that don't. The hopeful realism of faith is nurtured by the Spirit, giving us, giving us new ways of thinking about the world and ourselves. Craig Keener observes that when, we talks about setting the, uh, when Paul talks about setting the mind of the Spirit, he's speaking here of a frame of mind or a habitual way of thinking guided by the Spirit. It's really a new res- perspective on reality informed by God's Spirit active in one's life rather than a dependence or obsession with one's own ways. For Paul, the mind frame of the flesh produced death, that is, the mind dominated by bodily desires, and it stood under the body sentence of death. But the frame of the mind dominated by the spirit involves life and peace. Life and peace. Human beings spend so much time and energy and anxiety and money trying to achieve a state of peace, of homeostasis, and endeavoring to extend our lives to to preserve our youth. The habitual way of thinking enabled by God's indwelling spirit brings us what we ache for but so often can't seem to find. The new perspective of reality brought by the spirit to those in union with Jesus is a hopeful realism established and sustained by the work of the Holy Spirit in us. We just have to decide whether or not we will extend our trust to God. I just want to talk really practically this morning about life in the Spirit. Um, We really try, we're talking about these beautiful and ancient texts that are God's word to his people. Um, We try to move them the best we can when we're reading in our worship and our preaching um, from the world of what could become the abstract into the world of like our actual everyday lives. This stuff really matters. And there's real change available here. Um, This is truth with a capital T in our identity. Um, It has become really clear to me in the last few weeks, and this has just been confirmed in so many different ways, that God is calling our church into a season of prayer. And it's a perfect time for it. It's funny how, like, during Lent, or for those of you who are in community groups, maybe Sabbath-keeping is where you're also at, in these seasons where there's a type of fasting that's going on so that there can be a type of feasting, um, our attention is drawn towards God and his kingdom, towards the really real, right? 
the things that matter the most in the end. And so it's a perfect time, a jumping off point, if you will, for us and our church to enter into a season of prayer. And there'll, there'll be different practical opportunities for that. There's already one group that started spontaneously and has been meeting for a little while um, and, and praying um, that I didn't really have anything to do with. And I'm really grateful for it. And I anticipate that there'll be more of those. Um, but even more than just what we do corporately, we want to, to do things as a community that match up with um, what God's calling us to, but also just individually, you know, this is a call and an invitation to live life in the Spirit, to live in ways that actually accord with your real identity in Jesus. Um, and so I don't know what those practices are for you. I don't know if that's, is it silence and solitude? Is it praying in community? Maybe you do need to sit down and just pray with one other person. For myself, I mean, in seasons of prayer in the past, I almost always have a prayer buddy just because I know that I'm not that great at showing up unless someone else is there to like, depend on me and call me and be like, where are you? Um, whatever those things look like, I can't prescribe them for you, nor would I try to. But I do want to say that I'm recognizing in conversations and in prayer that this is something that God is wanting to do with us as a church. And so let this text be a word to you today. Let it be a blessing to you today. Um, first, that you know that you have the Spirit I just hope that if, if you heard one thing, if, if you've especially been in a space where people have told you you didn't have the Holy Spirit or you wondered about it or when people talked about it, you always felt a little bit like, I don't know, have I really experienced? There's, there's a lot to experience in God, but you should know that if you're in Christ, you have the Spirit. That's, that's really important. But even more than that, um, yes, you have the capacity to sin, but it's not your normal anymore. You have a new normal. You have a new identity. So start acting like it, start living like it. And there are ways, ancient ways, the church has done for a really long time. Some of them are implicit in the church calendar. Some of them are like clearly shown to us in scripture. And some of them we just have to figure out how they're actually gonna land in our everyday lives with kids and jobs and school and all the different things that y'all are doing. Um, so my prayer for us is that we would um, enter into the thing that God has, that we would not let shame or discouragement keep us from um, entering into the life that he has, the life of the Spirit. Let me pray for us, and then we'll uh, do the prayers of the people. We pray this morning, Lord Jesus, we thank you that we have been united to you through baptism and your death, that you're raising us to new life, that you will ultimately resurrect our bodies. Thank you for the gift of your spirit, the pouring out of your spirit that reminds us of everything that you've told us, reminds us of our identity. I pray even this morning for a fresh pouring out of your spirit among your people. Lord, would you give people new thoughts about themselves, about the world, about their future, about their neighbors. Lord, would you do that for me? Lord, would you take us in all of our frailty and our humanity, our beauty and our places of brokenness? Lord, would you continue to heal us and bind us up and point us towards you? Lord, we ask for the mind of the Spirit, the mindset of the Spirit, the orientation of the Spirit, 
for a habitual way of thinking that's shaped by your Holy Spirit. Teach us what it means to walk with you, Jesus. Teach us what it means to walk in the Spirit. We ask these things in your name. Amen.